Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 452 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a wonderfully supportive writing community. And I'm also your co-host, along with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of so many things, the Mapmaker Chronicle series, the Adaban Cipher series. Her latest book is The Wolf's Howl, a Maven and Reeve mystery. How are you, Al? I'm okay, thank you, Valerie. I'm the fair to middling. I'm actually, I'm probably on the upside of fair to middling, actually, now that I think about it. Okay, why? Why are we on the upside? Well, you know, I think I've finally worked out all my tech issues. And I did start NaNoWriMo, as we discussed. Yes, but unfortunately what's happened is that the idea that has, you know, kind of taken my fancy for NaNoWriMo is a picture book. And it's pretty hard to write 50,000 (laughs) (laughs) picture book idea. That's hilarious. So I've written um, about 2,000 words, which is way too many for a picture book, but it's mm. a kind of a, a – there's a whole lot of research involved in this thing. And so I'm kind of – yeah, that, that's what I've been doing. So it's been about eight hours of thought to 100 words of writing. It's that So kind you're of- going to have to cut, 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 cut because, you know, picture books are, yeah, like around yeah. 500 words or whatever. Yeah, it's well, it's it's kind of a it's got some fact stuff involved in it, so it's going to yeah, right. I'm going to have to cut it, um, but it's also I don't I don't know if I can make the concept work yet. So it's more about conceptual stuff. So I kind of need all the information mm. to to try to get the concept right. So that's that's kind of where I'm up to. I'm, I'm you know writing 500 words for the 50,000-word NaNoWriMo at present. <laughs> well, Things exciting. may change. Things but, could change. But what are you going to do for the rest of NaNoWriMo then in terms of writing your work? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to finish. Well, this is like, this is the thing. This is actually taking me longer than I would have thought it might. And so I, I don't think it's going to take until the end of the month. I, I think I will get it finished. And then I do have another idea that I probably will just get started on um, and not really expect to finish until, you know, early next year, just given the way the year's going. Mm. Um, So, yeah, so I'm going to, yeah, that's, yeah, like honestly it's not a place I often find myself, this Mm. kind of deep thought. (laughs) 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 I'm joking. I do find myself in deep thought quite a lot. But, yeah, if not for this length of time, it's kind of hurting my head a bit. Anyway, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Wow. This may come to this may all come to nothing. Um, in which case I'll I don't know, do something else. But yeah, that's yes. what I'm doing. What about you? What are you doing? Brilliant. What have I been up to? I have been uh watching TV and reading. So oh. in terms of reading, I have been reading The Shape of Sound by Fiona Murphy, who we're going to be speaking to um uh, today. And I guess I've been kind of busy in the world of memoir because I've also been reading Anika Molesworth's Our Sunburnt Country, which is a memoir and a call to arms on climate change and how we can fix the agri- our agricultural system and our farming in Australia. Um, and I've also been reading, um, well, I'm currently reading Ed Eyre's book, the Whole Notes, which is just divine. And, yeah, so I've been reading memoir, it seems. I'm having a memoir phase and I have been watching probably too much TV. I've been watching American Crime Story Impeachment, which is just finished. Where are we finding that? 
that one is on Foxtel because, and right. it's about the um, Monica Lewinsky scandals, which you might think is, well, A, old news, but um, also you already know, know the story. But it is a fascinating portrayal of the nuances of the various characters. Monica Lewinsky was, a, was heavily involved as a consultant on it. Um, I'm watching Succession, oh, also mm. on Foxtel, which is – Oh, my God, the best TV show around, I reckon, at the moment. Mm -hmm. And um, I will soon be watching – none of this is sponsored, by the way. (laughs) Hashtag not sponsored. (laughs) I will soon be watching The Great about Catherine the Great, which I think is on stand. It's season two. And it's been created by an Australian guy, uh, Tony McNamara, I think his name is. So there's quite a – even though it's set in, well, Russia, um, there's quite a lot of um, occasional – Australian actors who pop up in it, I think, because of the Australian connection. So mm. they're my Val, Val's tips of the week. Yeah, look at you go. Like you're <laughs> just having your creative dates with television at the moment. Pretty much, and books and memoirs. Hmm. I you went know. to see the travelling. So you know the Archibald um, Prize has yes. their big exhibition. Uh, they, mm. There's a there's a there's a section of it that goes round to the regions, mm. and uh, I went to see that recently. Speaking of creative dates, nice. Um, have we talked about this before? I can never remember what we've discussed. Is it the one in the haven't. dairy? No, no, no. no. That was no. my friend Tamara Dean's photographic oh, okay. exhibition. Right. No, no. This one was in the local gallery here, and it was really um, it was really interesting because you know you see them in a in a place like our Shoalhaven Regional Gallery, which is quite Mm. small and not crowded. So you can actually, as opposed to going to like the New South Wales Art Gallery or somewhere like that, Mm. you can actually get quite up quite close and personal with the whole thing um which is which is lovely and um yeah it was it was interesting I I find portraiture a fascinating section of the art world just the Mm. different ways that people interpret what they see in a person I just think is really interesting so that was my that was my recent creative date well, was, um, well, related well to that, doing. because yes. I'm obsessed with television, Look at uh, the the ABC series, six-part series, The Archibald. Um, oh, how good where, was that? We talked well, about there's, that. There's, oh, there's, there's two. No, there's two. Oh. There's The Archibald, which was, I think, two years ago, so you've got to look for it. And then there was the recent Rachel Griffiths one that she oh, hosted. So okay. they're, they're different. Ah, um, I saw the Rachel Griffith one, which was great. I loved it. That was great, but I actually reckon the other one, the the, the Archibald was called, um, was even more interesting. Okay. They're both very good, yeah. There you go. There that you was go. tip. Hot tip of the week. Do you watch Fake or Fortune, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> art on television? Do you watch Fake or Fortune? No. What's oh, that on? Oh, that's great. That's on the ABC as well. I don't know if it's on at the moment, but you can usually find it on iView. But that's where people bring out the painting that they found under, oh, you know, Grandma's yes. bed and they in, conduct an investigation into whether it's, you know, really Fake a Monet or whether yeah. it's, yeah, and it's so interesting. It's like a detective story for art. I love it. I, wow. It's a great series. Yeah, really good. I must look it up. Okay, so you want to be a television watcher. Yes, Yes, where you are right now. (laughs) We're going to move on into the world of writing and publishing. We have a bunch of really interesting links from you. Hey, Al? Well, uh, they are interesting, but they're um, so they're really just a quick discussion that we need to have about each of them as we go through. Um, so 
the the first two are that we have some uh, literary prizes, some publishing prizes that are open yes. at present. Um, so the Penguin Literary Prize is open for submissions until the 15th of December 2021 mm. uh, for the 2022 Penguin Literary Prize. Um, this is, you know, an unpublished manuscript. This is competition to, as they say, on the website at penguin.com.au, mm. find, nurture and develop new Australian authors. Now, we have spoken to earlier this year, I think it might have been, um, mm. with Imbi Ne who won uh, in June 2020 uh, for The Spill and mm. rights for that one have actually sold in Germany and Estonia as Woo-hoo! well. Um, and she talks at length, and I cannot remember the episode number because I am not prepared, um, about the importance of this particular, you know, prize in her uh, publishing journey. And Episode 335. There you go. There's my handy helper. <laughs> 335, that's last year we talked to her. It is too. She's uh, oh, time flies when you're having fun. Anyway, yes. go find it because she talks <laughs> about the about you know how valuable entering competitions can be for your publishing um, career because she entered several before she won this one. So um, go and have a listen to that. And if you've got something ready to go or nearly ready to go, um, enter the Penguin Literary Prize and you'll find the link in the show notes. But you will also mm. find it at penguin.com.au. And the second exciting award for an unpublished manuscript that is currently open is the Dorothy Hewitt Award for an unpublished manuscript. Um, Now, this one is open until the 30th of November. Uh, The work has to be fiction, narrative, nonfiction or poetry, inclusive of hybrid genres such as verse novels or memoir. There's a $10,000 prize involved in that one. Um, And it's open to all writers who have completed a manuscript and are seeking publication. So, And um, a publishing contract by UWA Publishing. Oh, sorry, yes, and Mm. a publishing contract, of course. Sorry, I forgot to mention that important Mm. bit. Um, We didn't mention the prizes for the Penguin one either, did we? Well, that was a prize value of $20,000 and the Mm. opportunity to publish with Penguin Random House. Yeah. So uh, just wanted to flag that with you. The year is not over. The opportunities yes. for, publish- for publishing are not over. Um, so if you've got something that's ready or almost ready, get on it and, you know, get yourself involved in that because, uh, as we've talked about before, competitions can be a great way to get yourself over the line. It gets you in front of the judges. It gets you in front of the publishing companies um, mm. and it can be a great way to be discovered, get off the slush pile. Um, and the other two links that I have for you are two links that are on my website at alisontate.com and I've got some new book lists uh, which have been created for me by some brilliant Australian authors. Um, Now, if you have been, you know, with the public with the podcast for a long time you'll know that um every once in a while i just randomly put together some book lists to help you find new and exciting you know books uh for kids and with christmas coming up of course this is prime time for the mm. for the new book list um and excitingly uh to I, I sort of like put out a call out and said, you know, who wants to create some book lists for me? Um, and so I've got one created by Nova Wheatman and Emily Gale, uh, both, you know, very well-respected, highly respected middle grade authors mm. um, in Australia. And they have put together a list of 15 amazing Australian novels for readers aged 10 plus. So those who are on their way to YA. And um, 
it's they were all published in 2021. So chances are these mm. are books you haven't seen before, your kids haven't read before. So if you're looking for uh, for gifts for you know young readers in your life, have a look at them. Mm. But also if you are writing middle grade fiction, if this is an area that you are trying to target with your um, with your you know publishing or whatever, um, this is a great reading list you know, of yes. terrific books that have been published in 2021. They're at the sort of more literary end of middle grade fiction uh, because Emily and Nova both write to that end of, of, of middle grade fiction. Um, and it's definitely worth having a look at if you're looking for recent, like have a look at what's being published and this is what's being published. So have a look there. Um, again, you'll find it at alisontate.com. And then I also have a fantastic list from Christy Byrne who oh, yes, is a cracker. Yes, who we mm. now we've interviewed Nova on our on our podcast before. Yes, I think ages ago, a long time ago. Um, Christy Byrne, we have also uh, interviewed on our podcast. She is a science writer and middle grade author. She has a new series out at the moment, co-authored, and it's called Wednesday Weeks, and it's all about science meeting magic. So there was no one better to ask to create a list of twenty-one books for kids who like science, um, and those who don't who don't know they like science yet, as Christy puts it. Um, and this is a list of of books, you know, with a STEM kind of theme, non-fiction and fiction, picture books all the way up to middle grade. Mm. Um, and again, if you're looking for something for for you know for festive season giving or end of school giving or anything like that, um, it's a great list, also a great list if you are, you know, writing in these areas. So you'll find that at alisontate.com as well, uh, but we will also put both of those links in the show notes. And I just, the other reason I wanted to flag them with this mm. audience um, is because it is you know, this kind of stuff where you create content, this is a guest post kind of an idea, guest blogging ideas. People often don't quite know what to do, you know, to pitch guest blogs and that sort of thing. If you've got an area of expertise, if you have an area where you are A, writing or, you know, B, reading a lot or you are, you know, you have some kind of, of um, credibility in that area, this is a great way to create content for other people and promote your own books at the yes. same time. Now, if you mm. have a look at the at the posts as they appear on my website, you will see that not only do this if you are going to get a very, very decent introduction, like if there's going to be a lot of focus on you mm. up front, um, and only do this if you put your own book on the list. I mean, yes. and I know that's <laughs> – well, it sounds like people are all like, I can't sounds possibly obvious. put my can't possibly put my own book on the list. But if you don't put your own book on that list, you are missing an opportunity because a lot of people will never read the intro and never read the, the you know the bio at yeah. the end. I yeah. I put book covers on, I put links, I do all of that stuff. But if your book is not on that list, there's a huge number of people that will never ever see it because they just won't read the top and tail. So. It's a great way to get your book out there. It's a great way to put you in the space with the kinds of books that you would like to be seen in that space with. So always be thinking about that when you're creating your lists. And um, and it puts you, like from my perspective, with my, uh, you know, on my website, it puts you in your Kids Next Read Facebook group. It puts mm. you with 21,000 people who are definitely interested in what you're doing. It puts mm. you on my website. It gets you a conversation on so you want to be a writer. Think about where you're going to put your time and your energy. Only do it if there's something in it for you. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. 
Yeah. I mean, if you've got all the time in the world, yeah, yeah, do what you like. Hey, yeah, for whoever you, know, you want. Got, but yeah. if you don't and you want to think, stri- and you want to think strategically yes. about what you're doing, like think about where you want to put your guest posts. Um, when mm. I do these kinds of posts, and I do them fairly regularly, um, I put them on parenting websites. I put them yes. where my book is going to be put in front of, or I put them on parenting blogs, or I put them um, into the space where the people who are buying for the age group because kids my in my age group, in my middle grade age group, are not generally buying books for themselves. So I put them in front of people who are buying for that age group. Yeah. And people love lists. And depending they love on... lists, particularly yeah. at this time of year. Oh, because, absolutely. You know, you need recommendations. Absolutely. And you want mm. you want someone to curate it for you. Like our yes. Facebook group is full of people going, I've got a seven-year-old who likes dinosaurs and he's already yeah. read these books. What can he read yeah. next? And that sort of stuff. So you want to be able to, you know, you want your book to be in, in an area where get you find the market. Go for the yes. market. Look for the audience. Yes. And when people trust lists, they will, A, keep coming back for more, but depending mm-hmm. on their personalities, uh, they may or it, that depends on how slavishly they follow the lists. Because do you know, like, there are some people who say you do the, I don't know, top 10 bars, uh, rooftop bars in Sydney or something like that. And there are those people who will rip that out or in the days that you used to rip things out of magazines, you know, book market. And, and every and go to every night, single go one to of a them. different one, yeah, yeah, because it was just a thing. And they knew that it had been curated. They trusted whoever wrote the list yeah. and they knew they were going to have a decent time, right? So yeah. the same thing with books, same thing with experiences and and courses and so on. So, um, yeah, I think lists are a great thing, especially mm. when you trust the source. All right, let us move on. Oh, I will say, for those of you who were interested in listening to Christy Byrne, she was in episode 415 and Nova Wheatman was episode 117. So now let's move on to our competition this week because, as we know, Christmas is coming up. So we have 10 double passes to A Boy Called Christmas which is in cinemas on the 25th of November. Based on the international best-selling book by Matt Haig, the origin story of Father Christmas is reimagined in Gil Kennan's live action, A Boy Called Christmas. An ordinary young boy called Nicholas sets out on an extraordinary adventure into the snowy north in search of his father, who is on a quest to discover the fabled village of the elves, Elfhelm. Taking with him a headstrong reindeer called Blitzen, surprise, surprise, and a loyal pet mouse, Nicholas soon meets his destiny in this magical story that proves nothing is impossible. And it's got people like Maggie Smith, Kristen Wiig, who I love, Jim Broadman, and lots of adorable animals and creatures. So uh, go to writercentre.com.au slash win to win. Ten, one of 10 double passes. Entries close on the 22nd of November. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that we've written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. 
Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeariter.com.au forward slash book. Now, Al, hmm. are you ready for the word of the week? I think so, Val. I think I'm okay. prepared. Have you heard of this before? Cud bear. It's one word, cud, C-U-D, bear, B-E-A-R, cud bear. I have not heard of cud bear. Uh-huh. Okay. So <laughs> it's, it's a real word. It's a noun and it is a violet powder obtained from certain types of lichens to make paint or dye. Like, who would think? Because it certainly doesn't look like it would be depicting a violet powder. So it's another one of those words that's actually named after a person. But this is interesting. Uh, It's uh, named after Dr. Cuthbert Gordon. And so Cuthbert Gordon and Cudbear is a corruption of Cuthbert who figured out how to manufacture richly coloured dyes using Scottish lichen rather than having to import expensive dyes from abroad. There you go. That's really interesting. Do you know, I, I, no, I'm actually, I am actually interested in that. I had to, really? when I was writing, yeah, no, I am. When I was writing the Mapmaker Chronicles, um, I had to research because of the map making aspect of it. Mm. Um, and I wanted to, there was a vague, whole run, bunch of different reasons, but I wanted to bring in, um, you know, colour into the map. I wanted I wanted Quinn's map mm. to be coloured. Mm. And at the time, you know, that the, the book is set, you know, colour was, there were various colours available, but blue was hard to come by. And blue is what we wanted for the map because we had a whole mm. bunch of ocean stuff going on. So I had to research how... Um, he would have, you know, come up with the blue dye aspect of things. So it was like, I think it was actually Ash, Ash that did it. Maybe, mm. yeah, she was pretty clever. Um, but it's made from woad, a plant, and it's the seed. The seeds of the woad are used, um, are harvested and used to create the dye that created the blue back in that sort of time. And it's only in the first year that the leaves, it's actually the leaves, um, the leaves uh, can be used to create only in the first year of, mm. of the plant, you know, growing, can they harvest the leaves and get the blue that they need. There so you go. I have been I down this road. A, I found a word that Alison was into. You found a word that I, yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I hadn't actually, and I didn't have to research violet because I didn't need a lot of violet in a, my maps. All right, there you go. That was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. 
It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau slash creative nonfiction. That's writerscentercomau slash creative nonfiction. All right, so let's move on to our writer in residence this week. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, I've read uh, Fiona Murphy's memoir, The Shape of Sound, and it was absolutely beautifully written and also just fascinating. So I thought it would be great to have a chat with Fiona. Fiona actually did uh, some years ago, a while back, a course in freelance writing stage one. And um, she, she even though she works in the healthcare industry, she started freelancing um, on the side and she's been published in, you know, the Saturday paper and uh, the big issue and, uh, you know, some fantastic publications. And uh, this is her memoir. So let's have a chat to Fiona Murphy. Thanks so much for joining us today, Fiona. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Now, your book, The Shape of Sound, which I think everyone should read, um, in case people haven't got a copy yet, um, tell us what it's about. It's your memoir, so tell us what it's about and why you wanted to write it. Uh, it's a memoir about my experiences of hearing loss and more specifically hiding or concealing my hearing loss for over 20 years, um, which might sound like an unusual decision, but it's surprisingly common for people to conceal their hearing loss or pass as hearing. Um, I was born profoundly deaf in my left ear and I had so much trouble learning to read and write that I developed a lot of shame around hearing loss. Um, that I started to hide it. And I got very good at it, like really good at hiding my hearing loss, that it then became this terrible secret that I had fooled so many people that I became, I was almost trapped in this secret of hiding it. But it was only um, in my mid-20s that a series of events led me to learn, uh, start learning sign language. And that suddenly opened up a whole new world that I didn't actually know existed about deaf culture, um, communication, and I developed a sense of self and a sense of pride in something that I had been so deeply ashamed of. Mm. Ben, what, what was the thing that triggered you to think, I want to write a book about it? I want to write a memoir about it? It was something that was so out of my mind because it was an experience that whilst was really complex for me, I also thought it was quite boring because it was just my everyday experience because um, I've never known um, living in a, any different body that to me being deaf didn't seem that interesting. It seemed, seemed like a bit of a burden that I have to navigate and work around, but I'd never actually thought that deeply about deafness itself. And it was really only um, after trialing hearing aids um, in my mid-20s and 
such a profound experience of sound that I started to realize, wait a second, my body is quite different to um, the average experience of sound. That's when I started to feel a little bit of friction of going, what? oh, okay, there's something slightly different here. Um, and I started to become curious about my deafness um, in a way that I'd never been curious about it before. And that experience, because it was such a, it was almost so violent of a kind of a sudden influx of sound and noise that it took me a long time to process the experience. And I um, started writing in fragments and trying to kind of wrap my head around what, what had happened. This was about 12 months after the experience. And I just couldn't leave the idea alone. It wasn't very comfortable writing, but it was like something that I just wanted to kind of create a shape to and create structure. So I um, started writing a little bit about it and a little bit more. And I eventually crafted an essay and I thought, yeah, done and dusted. I've processed that experience. I've like dealt with my deafness. I'm going to move on with my life. Um, and the piece, uh, ended up getting published and the response was really, um, to me, quite um, unbelievable because people were asking questions and follow-up questions and questions I didn't have answers to. And it started a conversation that I'd shied away from for so long. Um, and I started to recognise that I had this unwittingly gained an expertise in what it's like to be deaf and to conceal deafness. Um, so my curiosity shifted from being um, slightly curious to more wanting to establish a clearer idea of what it is to be deaf. Wow. Okay. So you started writing these fragments, which eventually became an essay, but then when did you think, because the essay is very different to a whole giant book. So when did you think I'm going to actually write a proper full-blown book length memoir? That came much later. So the essay was published in, um, I started writing it in mid-2016. It got published in early 2017. And it was towards more the back end of that year, after I had started to learn more about deaf culture, that I started to realise that there was a world, a world living besides a hearing world that when I was starting to be a part of, it, I just was learning more and more and more that um, initially the research component was just purely to kind of fill in the gaps for myself and mm. it was all I could talk about. So I had gone from being so um, self-contained, so secretive to suddenly being like, oh, did you know, da, 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 da. oh, and did you know? And wow. I started to realise that um, all these things, um, people just didn't have access to understanding. So up until recently, um, most people assumed uh, in the general population that there's only one sign language in the world, whereas people are starting to kind of, because there are interpreters on TV with the pandemic, they're starting to recognise that there are hundreds of sign languages in the world. And this was information I was starting to learn a few years ago. And I just mm. wanted to tell people, to let them know that there's um, so many interesting things around us. And deafness isn't, um, I used to think it was boring, but now I think it's just one of the most fascinating things um, for anyone to kind of explore and experience 
regardless of whether you've got complete hearing or you've lost your hearing. So what was your goal in writing the memoir? It was really to answer a lot of my own questions. So it started out as a collection of essays and I was quite research driven of diving into the scientific database because of my background in health. Um, And I really just wanted to understand why the experience with hearing aids in my mid twenties was just so completely profound on a physical level. The physical reaction to having all these sounds was just immense. It was so fatiguing and frightening that I wanted to understand that. But I also wanted to understand, was my experience normal, quote unquote normal? Do other people have these hangups about hearing loss? Or was I the only one kind of making a big fuss or a big deal? And it was so reassuring to find out, as well as quite disheartening and upsetting to find out this is completely common, that there is um, a lot of people because of deaf history, they come into deaf identity and deaf culture much later. There's this real push through technology to kind of um, have anyone with hearing loss to really integrate themselves into a hearing world. And when I wrote the first version of the book, it was very, it was almost academic. And I'm not an academic, but it was the content that I was reading and I was trying to understand all these ideas that I didn't exist in the book at all um, because I wasn't curious about me so much. I was kind of curious about everything else and Mm. I was getting feedback from a few people and they're like, yeah, this is all, you know, interesting. It's a bit dry. (laughs) Where are you? And I was like, oh, no, no, this isn't about me. This is about, you know, this is about the bigger ideas and all the rest of it. And they're like, yeah, that's not really a story. This is just a bunch of facts strung together um and I was really embarrassed to be in my own book um because I was like no I want it to be kind of you know really robust really meaningful and who am I to kind of you know um kind of center myself in this story because for so long I had hidden my deafness and that was a real crux of it that's when the the project shifted when I realized that secrecy was the real sort of linchpin moment of getting into the material in a way that made sense in a narrative form so that's when I started to look at um, the idea of secrets and this commonality regardless if you have hearing or not we all have secrets and what it means to have a secret and the kind of the steps that we go to kind of just ensure that they stay concealed and the impact that has on us and that was thematically just unlocked a lot of ways of just kind of creating a bit of structure to the material. Mm. So when, just give us, if you can remember, um, it's the timeline, like uh, you did kind of academic version, you know, during this period and then at this point you decided you needed to be in it and how long that took and so on up until publication. Yeah, so the the first version, um, the short essay about my experiences with hearing aids was, it was quite memoir heavy. Mm-hmm. So I started that in 2016. That took about six months of hard graft to get 1,500 words. And that wow. was like a lot of like, uh, I took thousands of words to get down to this 
quite polished set of words, which is why I was very much like pat myself on the back. And I was like, <laughs> done and dusted. That yes. was so much work to get this. Um, and then sort of towards um, mid-2017 was when I started to kind of go into the research process a little bit more and I started writing little bits and pieces. I, at that stage, looking back on it, I thought I was writing a lot. I was really not writing much at all because I was still trying to learn the writing process. Um, I started shaping more essays in mid-2018 and I really kind of hit my stride from that point on when I kind of got to the idea that this is a book more about bigger themes of secrets. I kind of really just charged into it. But the pieces were still very messy, incredibly messy, because I was I still didn't have like a complete vessel to it. And my mind was going off in lots of different directions because I was covering so many years of history along with my own history mm. that it was only after I got signed with the book deal that I really had to sit down and be quite diligent in 2020 of actually completing the manuscript because I got right. signed with about 30,000 words and I had lots of unpolished words but I had 30,000 very polished words that yeah. um, most of 2020 was drafting and redrafting to kind of meet the deadline. Yeah, right. So you basically wrote it during the first, well, the first year of the pandemic kind of thing. And um, writing a memoir is obviously so vastly different to writing up a lot of research, in even research, writing it up in an interesting way, because you have to reveal so much of yourself. How, and you say yourself, you had, sp had spent so many years not revealing yourself. How did you get over that? How, what did you have to tell yourself or convince yourself in order to actually get the words on the page that are really quite deeply personal and intimate? It was once I understood that I could be a vehicle into making this material make sense it was a really nice way for me going for me to understand that it was about accessibility because I had struggled so much with learning how to read and write as a child. I'm really quite passionate about plain English and finding ways of making complex ideas comprehensible. So it was quite easy when I was reading through the material with kind of a cold eye going, right, what is going on here? This is so dense. This is so academic how can I soften it, that then when I had a clear reason to include myself, it became a lot easier because it didn't feel like I was showponying then. It felt like, mm. okay, this is a, a step of craft that I can start moulding the material a little bit more so it was comprehensible. But then I still had not so much rules but sort of parameters of where I was going to draw boundaries and where I – was comfortable of talking about things. So there's very few identified people in the book besides my immediate family. So I don't really name friends. I kind of did it in like I was talking to a friend. A friend said this and that was quite tactical because I didn't want to draw anyone else into the narrative unless I explicitly had a conversation and had permission from them. Yeah. And 
that that was a lot of editorial feedback to make sure that all of that made sense without it being confusing because the initial manuscript was so vague in terms of those details. My editor was like, how many siblings do you actually have? <laughs> I was <a little> confused because <laughs> I kind of um, streamlined everything so much that it was hard to kind of track who people were because I was just – yeah whilst I was willing to offer up myself in um, to a certain extent of if I had experienced it, then I thought, well, I, I can talk about it. But if it involved anyone else, I did a lot of thinking to, to figure out, was it useful to the story? Was it necessary? And is there any way of working around it to protect people? Um, right. Interestingly, people uh, have said to me since, why am I not in it? And I'm like, <laughs> that's so much hard work to like conceal and protect. And people are like, no, you should have just put me in it. It's like, so I do think I kind of over overthought over- it. Yeah, yes. yeah 100%. <laughs> so you had 30,000 polished words and they were effectively the words that, you know, sold you into the publishing house. Um, were they the first 30,000 just so that I understand or were they somewhere in the middle? No, they, at that stage it was still um, a collection of essays in my okay, mind. Okay, so all right. There were kind of different points of my journey, but it wasn't chronological. That was kind of feedback that I got um, after signing of um, if I could make it chronological and amp up the memoir a little bit more, um, yeah. which initially, um, truthfully, I was like, no, artistic <laughs> integrity. This is meant to be like, you know, really kind of um, – you know literary but looking back on it I'm like yeah no having it in a chronological order does make a lot of sense yes yes now I understand that because the Rochelle prize happened and then you got people contacting you well like publishers agents but you actually kind of went oh no hang on for a bit tell me about that whole process you know, most people would jump at it. Most people would go, oh, my God, yes, sign me tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, so that was in 2018, end of mm. 2018. So on the timeline that I was saying before, that that was relatively, in my opinion, kind of soon into that process of writing. Mm. Um, that was like two and a half years in, which probably doesn't sound short, but in my mind I was still kind of really grappling with the ideas of what it actually was. And for the Rochelle Prize, uh, from memory, you only need 10,000 words, um, I believe. You don't need a full manuscript. And whilst I submitted words that I was very confident with, I was not confident with the rest of what the book would actually look like and entail. Um, I had a lot of ideas, but I I was assuming that um, because this was an own voices narrative, somebody with lived experience of a disability, that if I gave the idea away too soon, saw the idea too soon, it was going to be more vulnerable to being um, moulded by lots of opinions of it being swayed towards a certain shift in terms of publicity and positioning and what sort of narrative. And I kind of wanted to keep the control for a period of time just up until the point where I could create those sort of parameters and boundaries of like, yeah, okay, it needs to have more of me in it, but what does that actually mean? And 
what would the implications of that be for like a longer career? Because um, I want to oh. write more than just memoir. I want to write, um, I've done a lot of fiction and I'm working on fiction in the future. And I kind of really wanted to make sure that this is more of a, a stepping stone book rather than um, just kind of one hurrah. That is incredibly astute and strategic of you. Absolutely fantastic. Um, that, you know, that you thought that all out at that time. Some, you know, most people, like I said, would be just jumping at that chance instead of taking the time. Now, so you, go, you, you, you realise, okay, chronologically kind of makes sense. What, uh, and a memoir isn't necessarily, um, you know, your whole life. Uh, the definition of a memoir isn't necessarily your whole life. How did you then decide um, what period of your life you were going to cover and, um, and what key events or, you know, key, key incidences you were going to tell in the story? Um, I should just say that your podcast was pretty much why I could be so strategic in thinking about career and things right. like that. <laughs> right. I, honestly, listening to the podcast for years, uh, I think has given me so many like good tools for like how to approach a career in writing and the kind of the pragmatic but inspiring conversations you and Val have. I feel like if I didn't have that, I would have just jumped into anything without actually <laughs> stopping to think. So I, I really have you to thank so much for that. Great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of structuring the memoir and figuring out elements in life, um, I used a lot of spreadsheets, like no. a lot of spreadsheets. And that was mainly because um, once I was, I'm very good at like, following instructions like if I'm given a direction I'm like okay this is what I'm going to do so when I got the direction of make it chronological I went straight to like google docs and then I just did um uh, quite a large spreadsheet of years how old I was where I was living at that stage what was uh, the main elements happening in my life kind of on a fundamental level of say primary school high school da 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 and then I started mapping out kind of elements that related to deafness and hearing loss. So that's one thing mm. um, I think readers of who aren't so familiar with the memoir genre um, might get the impression that this is my whole life, but this is only a window of my life relating to deafness. So it does give the impression that um, it consumed me. In a way, it did, but it didn't. There's lots of aspects of my life that I didn't include that were happening in parallel at the same time. Mm. Um, but in that way, it made it a little bit easier to sort of cherry pick out moments, examples of trying to articulate what deafness is. So um, initially when I started writing, um, there's a, a few small sections of learning how to swim and that became almost like a motif of water throughout the piece. And it was only really when I was kind of going through this um, spreadsheet that I could see, okay, there's that moment with water and then there's this moment later on with water. So learning how to swim, then a Marco Polo game. And then I could start to really see that scaffold of an idea flow through with life experiences. So it, wow. spreadsheets might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's, it's like another way of just kind of mapping out and being able to like 
get that um, eagle eye view, that kind of overarching view of a, of a story, which um, maybe I'm a nerd, but I found it really helpful. <laughs> what was the hardest thing about writing this memoir? Fact-checking it in terms of there's a lot of research and data in it. And because I started researching in a curiosity-led way, I wasn't very diligent. Oh, yeah, of course. All my resources. Mm. Um, and that was fine in, up until a point when I had so much material, so many ideas, and I hadn't really been diligent in, like, saving the locations of everything. I just kind of figured that things would stay online and it should be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hours and hours, days and days and days trying to remember where things were and trying to pull it all together. And I was so concerned of getting things wrong because um, I wanted it to be robust that I did a complete like New Yorker style fact check on the book that my wow. editor was quite shocked when she got the spreadsheet. It was just hundreds and hundreds of entries where I literally fact checked every line, um, which was probably excessive yeah, it's but, it probably overdoing. <laughs> but it led to some really interesting things where I thought was um I didn't question the source of something um but then when I did start to question the source of something that led to really interesting essays like there's this whole section on Winston Churchill and it was only because I was in that mode of where did this quote come from? Where does this mean? And then that led into this whole section about architecture and deaf space. And it, I don't think I would have gotten to that point if I didn't yeah. question um, known sayings and things like that. So I yeah. think there there is a usefulness in going a few extra steps. It's time consuming, but I think it takes it beyond cliche into something yes. that could potentially be a little bit more original. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so you write it during the first year of the pandemic. Were you juggling? Ha, what, what did that look like on a practical level? Were you juggling a day job or were you not working? And did you do it at nights or weekends? How, how did that all work? Um, so I was working full time in health. So it was a, quite stressful at work because I was doing a lot of COVID related things. Of um, It was all pretty much COVID stuff, um, which was pretty full-on and horrible so it was quite nice to have an artistic project to really dive into um, every night and on the weekends it was a lot of late nights like a lot of late nights and it was pretty much non-stop every weekend which was possibly not the healthiest but it <laughs> was um, there was like not a lot of socializing happening so it well was, yeah I mean, besides like Zoom drinks and Zoom trivia and all the rest of yeah. it, um, it, it kind of in some ways it was fantastic timing because I didn't have to explain to people, sorry, I can't do that because I'm doing this, this and this. And it was almost like I had this bubble because I was living alone in a regional town um, that I could just go home overnight and then just step into the book and just spend hours and hours working and shaping and redrafting because I ended up rewriting it completely twice in that year. So I've like spent a lot of time at my desk making a lot of mistakes, going down a lot of rabbit holes, but it's 
it's probably sentimental looking back on it, but it's almost special that when I think of 2020, I don't think of those terrible times at work Mm. where it was just chaotic and overwhelming with so many things changing in the healthcare system. I kind of think of it as like this quiet space at my desk to just think and explore. Um, Yeah. Kind of nice. Why did you feel that you had to rewrite it um, twice? Was that through feedback from other people or did you just get to the end and go, oh, I know something's not right? Oh, (laughs) it was me. (laughs) My editor, when I sent it back to her a second time, she was like, you've rewritten the book. Like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the the 30,000 words that I got signed was in November 2019. Um, was when I signed and then I gave until May 2020 to have the full manuscript to my editor. So that was about 115,000 words and much too long, way Mm. too long. But I just, especially for like a genre of memoir, it was just Mm. bloated over the top, but it was a good kind of writing through process Mm. of trying to figure out what ideas are I'm drawn to and how to start shaping it um she did some edits she made some more suggestions about um chronological order and things like that and in retrospect now having gone through the process that was quite light feedback that I took to be bigger than what it was (laughs) And I was like, oh, my goodness, this book is broken. (gasps) It wasn't. I've since spoken to other writers and they're like, what were you thinking? I think I had spent too much time by myself by that point, to be honest. But um, I could see myself that I wasn't, it was, there was a lot of ideas there, but it wasn't sitting in a way, again, going back to that plain English accessibility, it wasn't. The material, there's so much material, it just wasn't accessible. So I did a whole rewrite in two months (laughs) to take it down to, I think, 85,000 words, which it wasn't just cutting, it was literally reshaping to kind of get it to sit together as a book because it was still, that first manuscript was kind of like a memoir slash collection of essays they weren't right yeah the ideas weren't flowing through as much and in those two months that's when I started to see those motifs kind of pop up of going okay I'm going to string this idea of sound being a physical thing and then I'm going to pepper that idea into each section and then water into each section and that idea of waves and there's all those kind of motifs started really coming through that I had to then rework all this material to kind of amplify those things but then also try and find a bit of balance with it. Um, and I was doing some silly things with the structure. I was obsessed with this idea of having um, white space to be almost like gaps in silence. So it's oh. in five parts and I really wanted it to be kind of, a, I just really liked a fancy structure. <laughs> but I was, because I'm so scientifically minded, I um, made it kind of the components of a sound wave, as in um, a scientific sound wave with frequency and amplitude. And my editor was like, how do these relate to your life? And I'm like, 
she was so right that it's I was like forcing my narrative into this um having all the components based on scientific versions definitions of sound waves and it was really only I can vividly remember it was late 2020 we're just going through the final sort of edits and I knew that I still had that structure there and I had all this like logic around why it worked but I had to like use a lot of explanations to explain it which means that it wasn't working Mm. and I did a last minute change um I'd come across a little bit of information about the lifespan of a note which in music their mm. um sound is described as in the following sequence attack decay sustain and release and as soon as I had that it was almost like a clicking sound like everything just went and fell into place I could see how my life kind of followed that structure. And then I just, again, did a, a short rewrite that time. <laughs> but I it, I was able to kind of slot it in and it just kind of held together. I wasn't having to like force it or make a reader have to do a lot of um, reasoning to kind of yes. journey through. Brilliant. Okay, so you work in health. Um, you've written this memoir. You've also, because you've done our freelance writing course and you've done, you've also written articles, which is completely different to writing a memoir. What's the plan now? Uh, do you intend to do all three or like what, what's, what's the plan for you? Um, I'm still doing a lot of articles, um, which is something I, I am quite passionate about. Um, mainly because it gives you a chance to kind of bring in research but talk to people. Um, mm. And I've been quite lucky to um, kind of do quite a few with the ABC and I've got um, a couple more with the Saturday paper. So it's quite fantastic that I've got a chance to explore ideas that I find really interesting. In terms of overall writing, I'm working on a fiction manuscript, which I'm hoping to kind of have a draft done by the new year. So I'm still... How, how far into it are you? Uh, I'm 60,000 words in. Okay, that's significant. Just kind of because it's a completely different genre, I don't know the ending, <laughs> which is quite difficult, but slowly <laughs> getting there. But I, I think I'm going to keep um, jumping between genres for the time being, mainly because um, I think it's just more interesting that way. So when in when did you know that you wanted to write? Possibly, um, probably it wasn't so clear cut. I was sort of very interested whilst it took me a long time to get into being into books, uh, how to learn Mm. how to read. I then became very much a bookworm. As soon as I had that confidence, I loved the library because it was so quiet and so peaceful Mm. compared to the playground but I didn't ever imagine kind of writing and creating something. So when I started doing courses with the Australian Writer Centre, it was really just a sense of I knew that I didn't have any skills in writing and I just kind of wanted to have a few skills just to feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, But I didn't have the confidence to call myself a writer, but I was happy to call myself a student. Like 
I'd Mm -hmm. always been a student. So I started attending a few courses and that's when I started to meet other writers. And then Mm. I started to recognize that that was a common feeling amongst people who enjoy exploring words that they're, they have a great passion and love, but it, that sense of confidence doesn't come immediately, which was so Mm. reassuring, so, so reassuring. Um, And it made me feel a little bit more comfortable of starting to see that it could be a journey towards gaining more skills, more competencies, and then suddenly, not suddenly, slowly kind of getting that sense of becoming a writer. Mm. Um, So definitely meeting other writers helped me to foresee it as being a possible destination. Yeah, right. And so with this fiction um, that you're writing at the moment, are you um, do you have any structure in terms of your discipline in, in, in writing it? Are you carving out certain parts of the week or, or how's that working? Um, I do about 15 minutes a day minimum, just enough to keep the ideas and characters in my head. And I typically do it on my phone because a smaller screen means that it doesn't feel like a big thing. Because oh like, yeah, I okay. <laughs> anyway, so I just use the notes app, and I spend at least fifteen minutes, but more often than not, it's about half an hour. But because of the casual sort of nature of picking up my phone during the week, jot a few lines down, all in one continuous note. Yes. Then on a Friday night, I put it into a Word doc, and I'm always surprised that there's at least two thousand words in there, if not more, yeah, because right. it's just slowly built up and then on a Saturday morning I'm like oh I've got where did all these words appear from (laughs) so it's I've almost tricked myself into like oh this gift from nowhere and then I slowly start shaping it and I would spend I usually spend about three hours on a Saturday morning doing that and then a couple of hours on a Sunday afternoon so it kind of it doesn't feel like 2020 did where it was I was quite literally chained to the desk trying to get stuff done. I've kind of done it in a way that feels like I'm just doing it around my life and then slowly builds up and then I've got this page to work with Um, and it's been working well for the the moment. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, And finally, uh, what would your top three tips be for – aspiring writers or students of writing who hope to finally get to be in your position where they're published, whether it's articles or, also, or, or you know, a full-length um, piece like your memoir, what's your advice to them? Um, I think definitely work with your personality type and what motivates you. I did this really, really great personality quiz a few years ago, um, Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies which basically um, she believes that there's different types of motivation that each person has. You're either an upholder, so if you have an obligation, you will uphold it, um, whether you make it or somebody else makes it. Um, You have the questioning personality type where that person needs to really understand something before they take the next step. So they ask a lot of questions. They go, what's the meaning of this? Why is this so? And They need to go through that questioning process. Then you have the obliges where um, it's kind of that external obligation where if um, you find it really difficult to go to the gym, but if you make a promise to a friend to go, you're going to oblige that promise. Whether you want to or not, you don't want to break that obligation. Mm. And then there's the rebels who just do anything and everything 
and they can't keep a routine or a schedule because they're going to rebel against whatever rules they create or other people create. And once I realized that I'm an upholder, that's when I started to understand my writing process. I started entering competitions because I wanted to uphold the obligation to the deadline. Then I started submitting pitches. And then if it got accepted, I would have to uphold the obligation of writing the story or setting up the interviews. Um, And then that way, the research component of my memoir is I set kind of little landmark things that I had to uphold. I would find a whole bunch of articles that I had to read and understand. And that was my obligation. So Working with my personality meant that I wasn't fighting myself, but I was just working with my kind of innate kind of um, obligations that I would have. That's uh, great. People do that because it okay. makes a difference. Yes. So work with your personality type. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust your obsessions is a bit of writing advice that I got from a Sydney-based writer called Fiona Wright, and. She said it to me one day, just trust your obsessions. No matter how weird it is, just trust that you've got curiosity about it. Um, that definitely made nonfiction work more interesting because if I started to get obsessed with something such as Winston Churchill, who <laughs> such a, like, I had no interest in him before and then suddenly I was obsessed with understanding um, how his deafness might have impacted world events, that's, I just followed that down the line, even though that has nothing to do with me and my memoir and like personal life. It it made sense to kind of follow that obsession. Um, hopefully, it makes sense in the book. Yes. <laughs> and the last piece of um, the last writing tip is learn to ask for feedback. This mm. is something that took me quite a while to actually learn how to be good at asking for feedback, and it's really be specific. So this not only helps the people who are you've asked to give you feedback, but it means that you've started to apply a critical lens to your work before you give mm. it away to someone else. So it gives you a slight bit of detachment but control. So if you ask someone, I've written this essay, I'm just curious, do other tenses making sense? Are the transitions between um, different topics making sense and is it um, believable and compelling? And then you'll get feedback just on those things. So they're not going to tell you that you've spelt their wrong every second Mm. line or something completely uh, crushing or whatever. They're just going to stick to what you've asked for. Great. Brilliant. Well, congratulations on the book, The Shape of Sound. Everyone, you need to go get yourself a copy. So thrilled for you, Fiona, and so thrilled that you were able to talk to us about it today. Thanks so much. There we go, Fiona Murphy. I do love reading a good memoir, don't you, Al? I do. I'm saying that I haven't read a memoir for quite a while, but I do Mm. enjoy an excellent memoir. I wrote, I actually, I think, most of the memoirs that I have read in the last couple of years have been music-based memoirs. Really? Yeah. Oh, I like, okay. Yeah, yeah. I like. Well, you'll like whole notes. You'll 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 um like whole notes by Ed Ayers then. Okay. All right. Because it's you know, um, based around music, the very strong themes about music. Anyway, hmm. let's um let's move on. What are we do? What are you doing in the coming week? Uh, what am I doing? Well, excitingly enough, I'm posting out quite a lot of books. 
books because oh, um, I have the special offer on at the moment, uh, which is oh, yes. um, all about, you know, buying A.L. Tate novels, signed A.L. Tate novels for Christmas. Um, and How I have, do people get that? Well, I'm going to put the link in the show notes because okay. that's the easiest and quickest way to, okay. to find it. Um, <laughs> but, yes, it's on my website. Uh, but the best way to find it is just to go to the show notes. And where are the show notes, Valerie? So you want to be a writer.com.au. All right, where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at Al Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more. <laughs>